0: Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Today we check in with Fidelity Director of Global Macro, Yurian Timmer, as he discusses what's moving the markets and provides his insights on what investors should keep top of mind. Specifically, Yurian touches upon earnings, overall liquidity, and if he thinks we are in fact in a bull market. Yurian says the market seems to be moving on with life and leaving a lot of people in its wake. He adds the U.S. economy has proven to be quite resilient and seems to have become less interest rate sensitive. So what about a recession? Is it here? Is it not coming? Yurian has his own take on it and says a recession has been rescheduled for the time being, but not completely cancelled. He shares his thoughts on the S&P and if it has brought us into a bull market. Urian says, not quite, but almost. In his view, for the stock market to be confirmed a bull market, he needs to see three things. A path to an earnings recovery, a path to the end of the rate cycle, and better market breadth. Urian also talks about oil, commercial real estate, and how China's slow growth could affect global markets. As per usual, Urian will be sharing his charts, so please head to at Fidelity on Twitter to follow along. This podcast was recorded on June 12th, read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses and commissions are all associated with fund investments. It's an interesting moment in the markets. I
1: I was sort of wondering, it seems like a lot of house calls are re-rating, changing, sort of tearing up the script, rewriting it. Going
2: on? Yeah, so I and you know it shows you that um, the market is uh, is moving is moving on uh, is with with life and uh, it's leaving a lot of uh, people sort of in the wake. And if you think about it, you know, last year, of course, we all know what happened in the market. The S and P fell 28 percent. Bond yields ratcheted up as the Fed you know increased the cost of capital pretty substantially uh, and at a very fast clip. And that caught a lot of people off guard. Not so much that the Fed would raise rates because we all knew that was going to happen, but just how fast and by how much and how persistent inflation ended up being. So the goalposts kept moving last year and a lot of investors obviously got got burned because neither the 40 nor the 60 of the 60-40 really uh, provided a port in the storm. And then the lows came in October, uh, probably uh, not in line with what anyone expected. Um, and since then, I think the kind of the, the easy uh, posture has been, uh, you know, that other shoe is going to drop, we're gonna have a recession, look at how inverted the yield curve is. And you know, and I said the same, and am still saying the same, that it, it's hard to dismiss the recession risk based on the, the, the signals that we have, but it's not coming yet, it's not here yet. The economy has proven to be quite resilient and and the market is starting to declare itself and and just to you know just to kind of give a, a historical perspective uh historically the market goes up 60 70% of the time by an average of about 10 11% per year so that is the that is the normal state of growth right it's not a flat line um, and you know of course in 2021 after all the response to the pandemic the markets did get into a little bit of a bubble because the Fed and other central banks lowered rates too much and then kept them there too low. I shouldn't say they lowered them too much, but they kept them low for too long. I think we can all probably agree on that. And that, you know, as you you lower the cost of capital to an excessive degree, it raises the present value of future cash flows, all else being equal, and that's how you get into a little valuation bubble. And so we did need to reverse that. But if you think about it, you know, we we went down for 10 months, right, from January of last year to October by 28%. And even though the cap-weighted S&P is now up 20% from the low, which is prompting a lot of people to say, a new bull market is here, the general market, the S&P 500 Equal Weighted Index, really has just languished um, for the last year or so. So 10 months of down followed by about eight months of sideways that pulls you back down within that, that trend channel that you see here, and that's a pretty long time for the market to not be going up, which is its natural state. And so I think it's, it's, you know, we're at that point where the market is wanting to declare itself, and we can talk about this in a moment, but there are some, there are some green shoots here that, to suggest that it's justified in doing so
1: on that or, and maybe related, but you watch it and you wonder if this is what the beginnings of a more sustainable growth looks like in the economy. Not not red hot um, with interest rates perhaps forever needing to be as high, but this sort of narrative that the growth continues, the inflation continues, and interest rates sort of stay somewhere in the 3% range. But is is this what growth in the economy finally feels like, maybe? Um,
2: it's, it's, a good, it's a good question, uh, you know, and when we think about earnings growth as a as a microcosm of regular GDP growth, you know, we are seeing some signs of life there. Slide here, the slide 15.
0: The next few slides Yuri highlights are earnings breadth and earnings estimates, both tweeted on June 12th.
2: Um, so I, I think, you know, the, the shock of the rate reset um, obviously was felt in certain segments of the economy obviously we know about the bank tremors we had uh, two months ago or actually already three months ago that was early March um, and we know that the fed has really round tripped in a pretty big way from you know zero uh, or well below what we call the natural rate of interest to now you know five and a quarter and presumably the Fed will pause this week, but then we'll go again in July, so we could be at five and a half percent in a month or so, and that takes you to about two hundred basis points above the natural rate or the neutral rate so we have seen the round trip, and of course, you know if you had asked me two years ago if the when what would happen if the Fed went from zero to five and a half in a highly financialized economy that is really kind of dependent on low interest rates because of the debt levels, I would have said, you know, that something would have broken. And of course something did, you know, we we had the, the banking uh, the tremors, but still the, the economy has been very resilient. And even here you see on the earning side, the, the, the pink bars here shows the, the, the number of companies in the S&P that are seeing their estimates being revised higher from 3 months ago and Amazing. you know a, a okay. few yeah you know, and in december that number was only 27% which is very weak and now it's up to about 47% so you, even though the the eps numbers are still falling kind of the second and third derivatives you know revisions and rate of change are starting to improve and actually if we go to slide 9 you can see this uh, uh, in a longer term picture that even though the actual earnings estimates are still falling, you see uh, we've gone from plus 40% to minus four uh, and the bottom isn't in yet. But you see in those little gray bars that the number of revisions, upward minus downward as a percent of all estimates, is now actually flipped positive. So coming back to your question, my sense is that a big part of the answer of why is the economy remained so resilient um, is that the economy seems to have become less interest rate sensitive. Um, and I think the reason for that is that rates were so low, so low for so long now, you know, 2020, 2021, that um, at least in the U.S., many homeowners, most homeowners um, are now sitting in fixed rate, low interest rate mortgages. Um, and, um, and so that makes them a lot more immune to what the Fed is doing to interest rates. And you can say the same thing about corporates you know especially on the high yield side Um, and then of course the other more fundamental reason is that you know people still have jobs the unemployment rate is 3.7 percent wages are more or less keeping up with inflation and we've seen layoffs especially in the tech sector but it's not it has not reached these kind of big uh, types of numbers that we've seen in past recessions. so the economy is holding up maybe it won't stay that way maybe we will get that recession down the road but maybe it you know but again for an investor uh, you need to know a lot of things if you're going to play that game right you need to know when it starts how deep how long it's going to last how how bad it's going to be and then how much of it is priced into the market so those are four things that nobody knows in real time and that's why timing the market around these kinds of cyclical inflection points is really a very low probability uh, endeavor.
1: So, I mean, there is that sell in May and go away. Uh, There are those in the market, although I think there's a real FOMO that people haven't been part of it, but a chunk of investors have made serious gains already. So why not sell in May and go away for them, for instance?
2: It's tempting and a sell in May strategy and then you buy it back in November. And we do see, for instance, if you look at the table, on the left clearly there's a seasonal pattern and june july august and september are by far the four worst months of the year especially relative to the underlying trend which as we said earlier is about plus plus 10 percent per year uh, but if you look at the different lines i have different pairs pairing strategies right one is you go from stocks to cash one is you rotate from bo- stocks to bonds And the other one is you stay in stocks, but you rotate from the overall index to the utilities, which of course is a defensive sector, very much like going into bonds. And you can see that the alpha, the the excess return, uh, is there over the long run. So so the strategy does work, but if we go to the next slide, which is just, I'm showing, I'm visualizing the data in a different way. So here I show both scales are the index, so therefore the gray bars is just a a slope of one because that's staying in the S&P. And the reason I show it this way is because you can see the other strategies that you end up above the gray dots, which means that the strategy has added uh, excess return, but you can see that almost all of that return happened in two occasions, one the dot-com bubble bursting and the other one is the financial crisis in 08, and that, those happened within a secular bear market, and those were times where especially because of when it happened uh being out of the market I mean, remember October 08, right I mean that was a great time to be out of the market uh, so a lot of the alpha comes from two episodes um, and then all the other times it really didn't matter so uh the the, the short you know the long answer to your question is that uh, this is a proven strategy, but it really comes down to two occurrences and i would not recommend this as a as a general annual strategy because like we said earlier you know this strategy involves market timing and market timing you know sometimes you get lucky sometimes the odds are in your favor but it's it's a, it's a challenging thing to do uh, relative to just being in a solid diversified portfolio with an eye on the strategic allocation rather than the tactical
1: uh, we said in the introduction, uh, we just before we said hello to you, that you, you perhaps don't want to yet call this a bull market. Why not?
2: So uh, I had this question, I was on TV on Friday, um, a little sleep deprived because I went to see the Flaming Lips uh, the night before, but that's hey, a different just story. Just tell us
1: about <laughs> that. Just briefly. Hang on, hang on. Hang on. How, how did you get this tickets to go and see this? Okay.
2: Uh, actually, let's pull up slide one. Okay. If you insist, uh, I'll indulge <laughs> you. Uh, I'll indulge myself. Interlude. Uh, so I, I'm a super fan of the Flaming Lips, um, and uh, I had to be in New York anyway, and it just lo and behold, it turns out that uh, my favorite band was playing in Brooklyn at the King's Theater. And um, and I was solo, and usually yeah, you don't usually go to concerts by yourself. It's a social activity. You go with a loved one or friends or whatever. But I you know I've seen them probably a dozen times, and you know I, I, no one I know appreciates this band as much as I do. So I'm like you know what, let me see if there's a ticket, and there was a ticket way on the left side of the balcony, which is where I took this picture, and which is great because I'm not a mosh pit kind of person. So I just sort of sat on the side and I just completely geeked out to this to the band. And they are very visual. They have really big lights. And I'm a visual person, as you can tell from my charts. And I just had two hour, two and a half hours of, of pure bliss just observing them and immersing myself in it. So it was kind of a near religious experience for me. And and uh, and um, and seeing them by myself allowed me to really immerse without any distraction, not to call. Uh, anyone, I would go with a distraction, but you know, you know what I mean.
1: Yeah, they say that listening to music uh, with a group of people, so I.E. a concert, is actually one of the highest. What what is the thing when you just you know you feel yeah. the best in your life? It's it's yes. one of the best.
2: Human... No, true. And and I took my parents to see Bach in Hamburg, Germany, in April, and you know and that was magical because you are sharing this this experience. So it's certainly true, but in this particular case, the solo experience was was money for me, so. <laughs>
1: Fantastic, thank you for sharing that with us. Um. Okay, back to yeah. why not calling it a bull market. So,
2: so I was on CNBC the next morning, and the question, of course, because at that point the market had just opened uh, it was fortunately at 11 a.m., so that was good. Uh, and the, mar- the S&P had crossed over the 20% threshold. And so, to a lot of people, they use these arbitrary numbers, and understandably so. You know, down 20 is a bear, up 20 from the low is a bull. I, I don't tend to use that rule because I- I'd rather take a more holistic approach. It's almost like saying we're in a recession because GDP printed negative two quarters in a row. It's a it's a rule of thumb, but it's not the in- the entire definition. But um so my answer is to the question are we in a bull market and my answer is almost um so we 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 see the we see the rate uh, trajectory getting maybe towards the end of of its course uh with the fed now well above the neutral zone we see the earnings as i just showed uh getting less bad let's put it that way but you know to get from To get to good, you need to get to less bad first, right? So it is an important part on the journey. And uh, and what i really wanna see is I wanna see the market broaden out. So the S&P 500 is up 20% from its low, but the S&P 500 equal weighted is not and small caps are still sort of languishing at their lows. And I think the more important technical metric is how much of the decline has the market uh, recovered? Because we know from history, and I'll I'll have the chart, uh, you know, um, next week Monday, but I don't have it today. But we know from history that when a market declines and and then it recovers more than half of that decline. Generally speaking, you're in a new bull market because bear market rallies don't tend to recover more than half. Sometimes a little bit more than half, but ju- as a general rule of thumb. So, the S&P actually has retraced about 60%. So the S&P is getting there, but the equal weights only retraced 39%. And so we're 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 getting there, uh, but we're not quite there yet. And uh, but when you look again at the numerator and the denominator of a discounted cash flow model, you got earnings and you got rates. Uh, on the earnings side, things are getting less bad and starting to improve under the surface. And on the rate side, the Fed went again from, you know, well below neutral to now well above neutral. And maybe the Fed goes again into July, maybe it even goes more after that. But I think you can ar- safely argue at this point that we're pretty close to the end of that t- trajectory. And uh, we're starting to see even the broader, the kind of the cats and dogs of the market Starting to uh, show good basis. Um, so the mean stocks, or you know, this is the Goldman Sachs retail favorites index, starting to show a base, right? I mean, you can see how far from the highs we are, right? And I don't think we're going to recover all of that anytime soon. But that, you know, technically as a chartist, that looks like a pretty good base. And if we go to the next one, you can see the non-profitable tech, and and obviously th- those two groups have something in common. Uh, again, you're starting to see some basing activity here. So I, I'm hopeful. And again, 18 months since the peak in January of 2022, that's a long time for the market to not be going up. And, and like I said earlier, we did get into a little bubble territory in 21. So we did need to come down uh, as the Fed reset rates. But we're, it's this this period of indigestion or correction is pretty long in the tooth and and historically we know that when markets correct that correction ultimately resolves itself in the direction of the prevailing trend which generally is higher for the market
1: so so a couple of questions just just to kind of get get a hold of whether the the bear side of things you know is is still rolling around so thoughts on U.S. commercial real estate, is there a risk that owners could walk away from debt and would it have an impact on markets? And I might just somewhat add to that, there's a triggers question, you know, throughout the second half, what kind of risks, triggers ultimately could, could bring up the recession risk much higher?
2: Yes, so. So, the que- so it's a great question and I think this we all need to be asking ourselves, you know, is there another shoe? And when is it going to drop? And 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 you know how bad will it be? And certainly you know we know how inverted the yield curve is. We know about the issues in commercial real estate. There was just a headline last week that two major hotels right around Union Square in San Francisco basically right. said, "Here are the keys. We're out of here." Um, and so these problems, especially in big urban centers, um, you know, does continue. Uh, but I would argue that's priced in. I mean, you look at the commercial real estate, like the REIT sector, for instance, and you know that, that market is priced for that. Um, but the general question of, you know, the Fed has raised rates a lot, and some, usually when it does so, something breaks. And of course, the bank tremors we had in March is a clear evidence of that. And even though no other banks have failed, and those banks that did, uh, were particularly egregious in uh, being exposed to very low interest rates. Um, so, but even the ones that haven't failed are still kind of in a race against time, uh, against the against the Fed, right? Because think about it: not the mega banks, but the regional banks, the the local community banks, they are still losing deposits. Not because they're not they're not money good, but because you know. Banks are paying about a half percent on their deposits, and in, and investors or depositors, clients, customers of these banks, can literally get ten times as much by buying a money market fund or a T bill. So money is voting with its feet, basically, and uh, the banks either ha- they have two bad choices, right? Either they compete against these higher rates by offering more in their deposits, in which case their net interest margins are not going to survive and then they will have to raise capital or sell assets but in any case they wouldn't be making a lot of new loans so that's one and the other one is they just they can't compete with it so they let their the money leave the deposits leave in which case they have exactly the same problem they have to raise capital sell assets and certainly they're not going to make any new loans so this can all go away if the fed stops lowering rates right because then that that whole pain trade ends but until the fed does um you know this race against time will continue and uh um, and that gets you to a credit crunch scenario which is typically what you see in a in a recession right like a bad a, a, a bad recession tends to have a liquidity crisis component like the financial crisis did um, or it tends to have a severe credit crunch because banks are just not lending money, so to me that's the main risk here in terms of connecting the dots from a pretty resilient economy right now to a recession maybe later this year or next year um and uh, But again, you know it depends on how bad the recession is, how long it lasts, what it does to earnings. Um, and uh, and whether the Fed can respond to a recession with lower rates at a time when inflation is still running close to five percent. So there are a lot of open questions there.
1: Great question on oil coming in. Oil's lower today. Um, I think it's sixty nine last time I was looking at it. Yeah. Also,
2: the edwards, uh, yeah.
1: Yeah. What what do you think? there i mean this is sort of the global demand question we had opec make its move is china going to demand what we think china is going to demand where where does oil go from here
2: it's certainly a lot weaker than i think a lot of us might have expected and i think part of it is just opec dysfunction right we've seen the headlines part of it is that the the china reopen trade has been less robust than i think some of us expected and uh, and in a way, I guess that makes sense because, you know, in the old days, like during the financial crisis, right? China got the the whole global economy out of out of um, the doldrums by investing tons and tons of money on infrastructure and all that stuff. And you know, they've built pretty much everything at this point. So a China reopen trade is more about consumer demand and you know uh, more mobility in the economy, but it's not about building. More airports and railroads, and so that 's where the, the the energy intensiveness comes from uh, but you know the, the the glass half full here is that you know this is going to be great for inflation in the u s at least for headline inflation and so uh, you know if you think about the three components of inflation that the fed 's watching, one is the the good side, which is of course very much driven by the price of energy uh, food is the other one, which is a lot stickier. Um, but then you have sort of rents or owner's equivalent rent, as we call it. Um, and I think there's some light at the end of the tunnel there. Um, and then the final part is just your regular services. And, and that's related to wages. And, you know, again, people are, you know, the, the 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 jobs report, even though it was kind of mixed in terms of payrolls up, but household survey down, still continues to show a pretty resilient picture. So, but the, the goods producing deflation that we're now seeing will certainly help with the headline indices.
1: Um, Just for everyone watching, we're we're gonna have Thomas Goldsorp on on Friday, an analyst at Fidelity, uh, on Fidelity Connect, so you can direct all those questions to him too, as well. Um, Just to go back to sort of the China discussion and the growth and the sort of engine of growth, the global story, what ultimately does maybe China not growing at the pace we thought mean for currencies, particularly the US dollar?
2: That's a good question. I, I, I still think the dollar has some weakening to do, n- not in a, in a fireball of de-dollarization, like, you know, which is a very popular uh, theme, especially on, on, on the crypto side of things. But w- I don't have the chart uh, the, 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 this week, but when you overlay the real effective exchange rate of the U.S. dollar against the share of global reserves that is in dollars, there is generally a correlation, as you would expect there to be. And in recent years, the dollar share of reserves has gone down. It's down to about 57% or 58%, I think, down from about 66% maybe a decade ago. Um, and we know the story, and and China is part of it, right, this kind of the, 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 the BRICS dealing with trade on their own terms. And that's all, you know, to be expected, uh, especially when we have this now this kind of new global polarity going on where it's it's not, it's not a unipolar world anymore. Um, but I think the dollar will always maintain a pretty healthy share of global reserves just because so much trade takes place in dollars um, and the consumer, the U.S. consumer is the consumer of first and last resort around the world. Uh, I'm not saying that's a good thing because I think we buy way too much stuff in this country, but but uh, you know that that's not likely to change unless we are uh, getting to a serious recession here. Um, and even then, history shows that people people don't really sp- stop spending too much, uh, uh, other than on, on on big ticket items. So it's a it's a uniquely American thing. Um, and uh, so I, I think the dollar will be fine. But I do think it's it's a little elevated compared to where it should be. And part of that, of course, has been the policy divergence of the Fed going at it so hard the last year and a half, whereas other central banks have done the same. Of course, Bank of Canada, very much part of that. But the U.S. has generally outpaced certainly the ECB, the Bank of Japan for sure, and the People's Bank of China. And that creates a divergence in in interest rates that pushes the dollar up because the dollar currencies generally are are um, a manifestation of interest rate differentials. There are other things as well. But uh, so in that sense, I think the dollar has some weakness, which I think bodes well for a global asset allocation strategy that favors, um, you know, other regions around the world.
1: To kind of finish out, um, I get, you know, okay, we can't ask for a number, but kind of the odds just to recircle back to climbing the wall of worry from here.
2: Well, so we have the the recession uh, worry, and and again, I don't want to dismiss the recession. I think it could very well happen, but we've seen many bear markets in history uh, that have come and gone before a recession is even declared. And so that is, you know, like people think they hear recession, they think financial crisis. That's the only recession we've had in several decades, right, in two decades. and. That's not your typical recession. That was a recession with a severe liquidity crisis. And I don't see any reason why that would happen uh, again this time. Um, And of course, commercial real estate is the other one. And then this liquidity wall, we've talked about this in the past, where now that the debt ceiling has been raised, the treasury is going to um, restock its cash balance at the Fed. And that is supposed to be supposedly a liquidity drain that's going to be bad for the markets. Uh, And we can pull up slide 14 real
0: quick. That slide he's referring to is overall liquidity tweeted on June 14th.
2: Um, But even there, there are nuances because and and this is like uh, over my over my head because you get into the plumbing of the markets, but how much of the increase in T-bill supplies and the reduction in the, or the the replenishment in the treasury general account, how much of that will come from T-bill issuance and how much will that come from money market funds buying, you know, using the reverse repo window less. Again, this like makes my eyes glaze over, but even there, that liquidity wall is not a, a, a straightforward thing to say, this is gonna happen, therefore the market's gonna go down. Uh, A, because it's already anticipated and B, you get into the plumbing issue. So the wall of worry is very much alive and well, but uh, so far the market has held in pretty well. And again, this shows the Russell 2000 uh, small cap index. And it does show that the market literally has not gone anywhere in a year. So again, when you hear the S&P 500 being driven higher, um, it, it, it is not a uniform pattern. And that's one of the reasons why my answer to the bull market question is almost, but not, not confirmed yet.
1: Fantastic. Great to speak with you. Thank you so much, Yuri and for for joining us here today.
2: Pleasure. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.